Today's scripture comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be back with you. And I say back because I had the privilege of being here yesterday for this wonderful conference that was with RTS, hosted here at Exilic, and it's great to be with you again. I see a few faces I met yesterday. There's a number of folks, obviously, I've not yet met, but it's a real privilege to be here with you in the city of New York. My friend Jay Harvey, who's, of course, the executive director of the RTS New York campus, has told me all about this church for a long time, and I'm like, I cannot wait to be here and meet you all, and now I'm here, and I'm just thrilled, and it's been a wonderful weekend together. This morning, I have one of before us one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, you have it on the screen behind you here. Um, well, you used to have it on the screen behind you here. Um, I don't know if they'll be putting it up or not, but regardless if they're putting it up, if you have a Bible, turn with me. Hebrews chapter 12. If you have your phone or a, a set of uh, a physical copy of God's Word, either way will work just fine this morning. We're going to be unpacking this amazing passage today out of... Hebrews 12, just two verses for us today that we'll be pondering together. And as we consider these verses, let me just open us in a word of prayer and ask God to bless this passage to us. Lord, we're so grateful for your goodness to us, and Lord, I praise you in particular for this church and the many things I know you're busy doing in and among uh, these folks. Lord, bless their labors here in the city of New York encourage us today by this amazing passage. Help encourage us to keep running the race, Lord, not stopping, always looking to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So years ago, I had a chance to study at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. If you know anything about the University of Edinburgh, it's one of the oldest universities in the UK, and I had the privilege of doing my PhD there long ago, and I can still remember to this day when I was in Scotland at the university, every once in a while, I would sort of wander the hallways of the Divinity School. And if you were there, you would see what I saw. If you wandered the hallways, you would see these pieces of art and photos and pictures of the great luminaries that had been there before, the great teachers, the great scholars, the great theologians that had sort of blessed the halls of that school for generations. And every once in a while, I'd walk through and I would just marvel at what God had used these people to accomplish. But then when I was there in Scotland, I learned that there was another person who had studied at the University of Edinburgh and did his divinity work there, whose photo never made it on the wall. But arguably, maybe he's one of its most famous students ever. And that turned out to be the Olympic sprinter by the name of Eric Little. Now, if you've never heard the name Eric Little, you may want to watch the movie Chariots of Fire, which came out in 1981 and tells the story of Eric Little's life. Eric was a Christian in the early 20th century, 
and he became the most famous sprinter in Scotland. In fact, heading into the 1924 Olympics, all of Great Britain had their hopes on this guy named Eric Little because he would win the gold medal, and that would just project the fame and greatness of the United Kingdom all over the world. But then right before the Olympics, Eric Little, who was a committed believer and a Scottish Presbyterian, found out that his race would land on Sunday. And he told the Olympic Committee, I won't run on Sunday. And if you've heard the story, you know that a great sort of controversy ensued where everyone wondered, why is Eric Little shaming our country? Why is Eric Little giving up the glory of England and the glory of Scotland for his own personal religious beliefs? But he stood his ground. So famously, in fact, that they made many books about it and movies about it, because if you know the story, Eric Little ended up switching events at the last minute, moving from the 100 meters to the 400 meters, which is something you don't do in the Olympics, right? You don't switch events just before the Olympics. I think you'll have any chance of winning, but he ended up actually winning the gold in a very different event. Now, he's a hero now, and we laud his life and are thankful for him. But you have to realize, in his day, he was shunned and shamed and ridiculed. Why? Because he preferred the glory of God over the glory of any country. And he, he preferred the glory of God even over his own glory. Why would he do that? I'm convinced that Eric Little was running earthly races, but he was really running a bigger race, wasn't he? He was really running a heavenly race, a spiritual race. In fact, he knew that what mattered most was not winning a gold medal. What mattered most is not giving glory to England, what mattered most is giving glory to God, finishing well the race he's running for Christ. He was running an entirely different race, the Christian life, which if we are all in that together this morning, we know that's a hard race to run, is it not? That's the most important race you'll ever run. Here's the thing I know, though, having been in ministry a while, and you know this whether you've been a Christian for five years or 50 years, sometimes we think about quitting the race. Sometimes we're running the race and things are going well. Sometimes we're running the race and spiritually speaking, we get that pain in our side. Spiritually speaking, you feel like you're going to throw up. And some people just feel like quitting altogether. In fact, we have a whole cottage industry in America right now where it seems like very famous people who are Christians decide they don't want to be a Christians anymore and they deconvert and they become ex-evangelicals and they make a whole industry about telling people how they now have stopped running the race. And all of us are very discouraged when we see people stop running the race because we're people who often think about stop running the race. Now, if you feel that today, and I imagine some of us here are probably thinking, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. It's hard to be a Christian in our world. It's hard to be a Christian in New York City. It's hard to be a Christian anywhere. But if you feel like you're on the edge of giving up and stopping to run the race, that's exactly what the audience felt when this letter was written. We don't have time to go into it fully, but the book of Hebrews was written to a group. They were Christians. But they were in a situation where they, think, they thought, I don't want to keep running. I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. And they were thinking about abandoning Christianity and turning away from Jesus and doing something entirely different. So here's what happens in this story, in this letter to the Hebrews, is our author writes these two short verses to encourage you to keep running the race, the most important Christian race you can run. How's he going to do that today? As we unpack these two verses in our short time, I want you to realize there's really three things our author sets out here to help you run the race better and to help you not stop and quit in the middle of it. And by the way, it's what every person needs when they run. 
In fact, there's going to be three F's today. If you're going to run faithfully this Christian race, you need fans, you need freedom from entanglements, you need a finish line to aim for. Fans, freedom, finish line. Okay, let's dive in and talk about these briefly one at a time. Start with fans. Notice in your passage the very first verse here in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses. Throughout these two short verses, you may not realize it, but our author is actually invoking Greco-Roman imagery from the athletic events of the day. It's not that athletic events just started in the modern day. You know, they go back generations and generations. Even in the ancient Greco-Roman world, running was a very common athletic event. And when you would run, often you'd run in a coliseum, a stadium. The most famous of which you know is the Roman Colosseum, right? But there are many smaller Colosseums in the outlying colonies of the empire where they would gather and they would go in a circle surrounding the runner and they would cheer that runner on. And what our author is doing here is he's saying just like earthly runners need fans cheering them on, spiritual runners need fans cheering them on. You, as you run the Christian life, are surrounded. There's that Greco-Roman circular imagery by this great cloud of witnesses. You need fans to cheer you on, and the good news in this passage is that you have fans to cheer you on. They might wonder, well, who are these mysterious fans (laughs) cheering me on? Well, if you've been reading the book of Hebrews straight through, you would have just finished chapter 11. And most of you know chapter 11 is one of the most famous chapters in the entire book, if not the entire Bible. Hebrews chapter 11 is what we call the great hall of faith, where the author walks through all the great runners before you. All the great saints that not just ran the race, but finished the race. In fact, we had time, we could go back. The author lists them all. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Samson, David, all there showing you the race can be run. And effectively, when you run the Christian life, they're around you, surrounding you, showing you that it can be finished. Just when you feel like you're going to quit, you can look across the great swath of all of God's faithfulness over the years to these people and see that the race really can be finished. Now, the Hall of Faith is often confused as this thing that celebrates how great these saints were. That's really not what's going on in the Hall of Faith. Yes, there to be, we're, 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 we're to recognize that great things were accomplished by them, but the Hall of Faith is really about what God does through people, right? It's not so much about how great they are, but how great God is as he works through fallen, fallible human beings. Now, here's the thing about this passage that's interesting, though. In most earthly athletic events, the fans are there to watch the runner. But in the spiritual race, it's reversed. Did you catch that in the passage? It's not so much that the fans are there to watch you. They're there so you can watch them. When you run, it's not so much that they're looking down from heaven at you. It's rather when you run, you're looking back and around to notice all the people that's finished the race. So there's a reversal here. The fans in this race are there to be seen by you. How does that help you? I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, most of you know that, as just said in the announcement, I'm from North Carolina, and I'm, I'm the president of the Charlotte campus. My uh, alma mater there is UNC Chapel Hill, where I went as a student years ago. And yes, basketball's our thing in UNC. I can still remember going into the famous Dean Dome and watching games as a student. And if you've ever been in there, it's you know, all Carolina blue, and this is the place where legends were made. And one of the things they do in the Dean Dome, and they do this other places too, is they hang retired jerseys in the rafters, right? 
And there they are, hanging there with their numbers and with their names on them. And there's been some great players in Carolina over the years, right? Of course, right at the front is number 23, Michael Jordan. Then you got James Worthy and Sam Perkins and a whole sort of lot of all these great players that have played before. Why would they hang the jerseys in the rafters? So that when the players are on the court feeling like they can't press any harder or run anymore or think all hope is lost, they can look up and they can see those rafters and they can see those great names and that keeps you running. It's like that in the Christian life. What I want you to see here as you run is that when you run, you don't run alone. This is really key. When you run the Christian race, you're not running alone. You're running in this great cloud of witnesses. And that doesn't stop just in the past. This is the great cloud of witnesses. When you run the Christian life, how do you keep from from stopping? Don't run alone. Stay in the group. Run with your friends the Christian life. In fact, when I think about this passage, running a group, I always think about that scene in the movie Forrest Gump. Remember that scene where he's out there running, and then pretty soon another person runs with him, and another pretty soon there's like this huge, huge crowd of people running along with Forrest Gump in the, in, in, in the movie, and that's actually a pretty good picture of the Christian life. One of the reasons people stop running is because soon they find themselves running alone. I'll tell you, if you run alone, the Christian life, you're going to have a very hard time staying with it, because one of the things that keeps you going is the saints around you, cheering you, pressing you, encouraging you. So when you think about this first point, here's the big takeaway on this first point. Are you in community running the Christian life with others? Not just historically, but now in the present. That's going to keep you in the race. Okay, here's the second thing you need in this passage if you're going to stay running in the midst of your temptations to stop. First F was fans cheering you on. Here's the second F in the passage. You need freedom from entanglements. Freedom from entanglements. Look back down at verse 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the fans, right? Then notice what it says next. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, what our author is doing here is he's continuing to appeal to the Greco-Roman imagery about running in the ancient world. Notice this language of, of laying aside, putting off. In the ancient world, the normal sort of garments you would wear if you were an individual in the ancient world, would you wear a robe or a cloak of some kind? And it would, you know, be fairly long and touch down to the ground. This was sort of the normal wear in the ancient Near Eastern world. But you can't run in that. Have you ever tried to run in a cloak? Ever try to run in a robe? Ever try to run in a dress? You know that anything long is going to do what? It's going to trip you up and entangle you. What is our author doing here? He's saying, look, just like an earthly runner needs to take everything that could slow them down and cast it off, so running the spiritual race, you need to do the same thing. You need to take anything that can trip you up and keep you from finishing the race and cast it aside, just like someone would take off their robe to run. You want as few hindrances as possible. So what are these hindrances? It's interesting. Our our passage mentions two, and I'm actually going to take them in reverse order. Look, at the, look what he says second. First he says, lay aside every weight. I'll come back to that. But then he says, and lay aside the sin which clings so closely. This is the first thing I want you to realize that needs to be laid aside if you're going to have freedom to run. Is any sin which you're holding on to? Any sin which you're clinging to? I love how the NIV puts this. We're using the ESV today, but the NIV puts it this way. The sin that so easily entangles. Now, truth be told, we're all sinners and we're on this journey to glory, and we all fail and stop and, and have our problems and we get tripped up. 
But we also have a situation in our life where some of us grab a hold of a sin and won't let go of it. We know we shouldn't have it in our lives. It's not just an accidental thing. We're, we're grabbing it and we refuse to drop it. And we keep it close to us. Here's what our author says. You know one of the number one ways to not finish the Christian race is to actually grab a hold of some sin that you won't relent of, keep it close to you. It's going to trip you up over and over again to the point where you may not even finish at all. Here's the point. Sin is inherently in you. Notice that you don't have to put sin on because sin's going to be there, right? What you have to do is put it off. And our author is saying, you got to take this race seriously. You're running for your life. Don't let anything trip you up or entangle you. Now, what's interesting about this is this is actually reminds us of a very important theological point we often miss. We, in, in, in the Reformed world, we often make a point that what you, what you believe affects how you live, right? Your theology affects your life. That's true, right? What I believe affects how I live. But did you know what goes in reverse, too? How you live affects what you believe. It's not just that what you believe affects how you live. If you start living in a way that's contrary to God, guess what? It affects your belief in God. And pretty soon, if you start living with sin that you won't relent of, pretty soon things in Christianity don't seem to make sense anymore. Pretty soon it doesn't seem like something you believe anymore. What you realize then is how you live actually affects what you believe. So many times in pastoral ministry, I've had someone come to me and go, you know, I'm not sure I believe anymore. I don't think I want to follow God anymore. Almost inevitably, as I sort of dig into their life a little bit, I realize that they're clinging to some sin that they won't let go of. And that has affected what they believe. Make no mistake about it here. There's a sense in which if you're holding on to a sin, that's going to affect the way you run. But notice our author's not done. There's more here besides just sin. Notice what he says in the first part of that clause. Not just lay aside sin, but every weight. Anything that can slow you down. And this is a, this is a profound point our author is making. When you want to run the race for God, it's not just that you eliminate the bad things, right? But you eliminate even if they're good things, if they're not helping you run, leave them aside. This is a key part of understanding the Christian life. Sometimes we are asking the wrong question. Sometimes we ask, is this thing wrong? By the way, it's not a bad question to ask, but that's not really the only helpful way to think about it. It's not just whether something is wrong. Does this help me run? It cannot necessarily be a wrong thing you're doing, but it can still slow you down. If you look about the things in your life that you spend your time on, whether you know, it's recreation or other things, and, and there's nothing wrong with some of those things, but if you're like, you need to ask the question, not is this right or is this wrong only, but does this help me run better? And if it doesn't help you run better, leave it aside. Our author is saying, look, you're running for your life. Be ruthless. If something, something is not helping you run, cast it off. Be someone who is stripped down in a way that all you're thinking about is finishing the race. You know, it's interesting, when in the introductory remarks here this morning, our, uh, the, 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 the Grand Canyon was mentioned as this beautiful thing that makes men cry. I suppose that makes women cry too. I don't know. Makes anybody cry. But you know what's interesting about the Grand Canyon is it actually illustrates this point pretty well. Because one of the things that's interesting, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you, you may not recognize how dangerous a place it is, because people don't know that when they're hiking, it's the opposite of every other hike they normally do. When you normally hike a mountain, you start by going up first, right? And then if you're going up, you're doing the hardest part first, so you get really tired, and then you come down in the easier part. The Grand Canyon's the reverse. You start off the hike by going down, not up, because you're going down into the canyon, and every year, 
there are countless people who get trapped in the canyon because they go down and they keep going and keep going. They're like, I feel fine. And they don't realize that they're going deeper and deeper and deeper and they got to get out because the hardest part is later. I remember when I hiked a canyon years ago, I can still remember all the signs at the top. Do not hike this canyon in one day. Do not try to go past what you're able. You know, be aware you're going down first. It would not be unusual on a trail in the Grand Canyon that people get stuck down there and can't get out, and so they start leaving their gear behind. It's not uncommon hiking out of the Grand Canyon to see packs on the side of the trail laying there, tents laying there, gear laying there. Why? Because someone wants to live, <laughs> and they don't want, they, their, their gear doesn't matter anymore. They're going to leave it aside so they can get out of the canyon. It's also tricky because when you go down, it gets hotter. It's cool on the rim and hotter when you go down. Here's the thing. When, you, when you're hiking the Grand Canyon, these people realize you better cast off every weight in order to finish that, that hike. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck down there and trapped. That's exactly what it is in the Christian life. Recognize that if you're going to run this race, not only do you lay, lay aside sin, yes, but any weight, anything that gets in your way in the Christian life, leave it aside to run better for Christ. Okay, that leads us to our third and final F here. You need fans cheering you on. You have those in the great saints. You need freedom from anything that's going to keep you from running. But the most important thing you need is the last one, right? You need a finish line. Our author here is brilliant. He continues the Greco-Roman imagery of running because he actually lays out the finish line for you. Look down at verse 2. You run the race that's set before you, and look what verse 2 starts off, looking to Jesus. Notice the language here, looking. When you're running the race, you got fans cheering you on, you're, you threw everything aside, but what's your finish line? You're looking to Jesus. The best way to not finish a race is to not have a finish line. <laughs> the best way to never finish is to not even know where you're going. In the spiritual life of Christianity, here's the good news for you, we have the greatest finish line imaginable. You know, in the ancient Roman world, when you would run, the prize actually was at the finish line. They would actually put the wreath or the, or the, or the gold or whatever it is you would win, and they'd put it at the finish line when you run. And here, he's invoking that same imagery. When you run, Jesus is not only the finish line, Jesus is the reward. You're running with your eyes focused on him. By the way, I don't know if we often think about that enough in the Christian life, that the reward is Jesus himself. Sometimes we follow God and we think, well, if I follow God, then I get, I get certain things. I get blessings, and if I, if I follow God, I'll get to heaven, and I get eternal life, and I get other kinds of rewards, I suppose. But actually, the reward you get is God himself. He's the greatest reward imaginable. And if you don't think that Jesus is the greatest reward imaginable, then, then you haven't met him. What our passage is laying out is you've got every motivation to finish because you have the most wonderful person in the universe at the finish line waiting for you. He is your reward. And if you're going to run, you need your eyes focused on him. If, you're, if you've ever been a runner, some of you may have grown up running track, you, you don't take your eyes off the finish line. One of the biggest mistakes in running is looking around. Right? You don't look at your opponent, you don't look to the side, you don't look at the, you look right at Jesus when you run. He is the finish line. A number of years ago, I came across this fascinating movie. Um, you, may have found, you may have heard of it as well. It's called The Walk. And I didn't really know what it was about at first, so I started looking around. I realized The Walk was actually a true story based on a, a Frenchman named Philippe Petit. 
1974, Philippe Petit did something just unimaginable. He was in New York City, actually, Philippe Petit. And in 1974, in the middle of the night, he snuck up into one of the World Trade Center towers that was still under construction at the time. And of course, there were two at the time, right? Both under construction. In the middle of the night, with some help from his friends, he snuck into one of the, trade, one of the World Trade Center towers, and they strung a cable between one to the other. And they got this cable stretched between the two, hour, two towers all night long, made it super tight. And as the sun rose, Philippe Petit took out his special walking shoes and his long pole, and he stepped out on a cable above the entire city of New York. These were the tallest buildings in the city at the time, and walked across the cable. In fact, it wasn't long as rush hour unfolds in the city that people start to notice there's a guy walking across between the two towers. And so they basically stopped traffic and crowds formed and they watched him do this walk and he walked back and forth and back and forth for hours. The police were called and they went up to the top. How do you stop a guy walking on a cable, right? You can't go out there and get him. So they have to wait till he stops. And he went on for more than an hour walking back and forth, back and forth on this cable. Of course, finally he came off and he was arrested and he wrote, there was a book about him and then this movie... But they ask him, how in the world do you not fall when you walk across this cable? And he goes, Are you, everybody knows this. When you're, when you're doing something that dangerous, you, you step out on that cable and you put your eyes right on your goal at the end, the other tower, and you never, ever take your eyes off the finish line. Yes, there's lots to look at, lots of distractions, lots of people below cheering and yelling, cars honking, all kinds of things taking place, but he's, that's not what he's thinking about. He's looking at the finish line. That is the way the Christian life is run. If you want to finish the Christian life today, then there's no better place to look than obsessively focused on the glory and the greatness of Christ. When you embrace his beauty, his wonder, his greatness as your prize, that's how you run. Now, what's interesting about the story about Eric Little, you may not know this, that the day of the race... Remember, he decided he wasn't going to run the run 100, decided he would enter another race, the 400. Right before the race started, someone went up to him and handed him a little piece of paper. Now, he unfolded the piece of paper, and it had just one little verse on it from 1 Samuel chapter 2. The verse said, him that honors me, I will honor. And Eric Little wrapped that piece of paper in his hand and lined up for the race. What's curious on that day is that when you run the 400, you know you have a staggered start, so not everyone's standing beside each other. Eric Little drew the outside lane, and in a race like that, the outside lane's the worst lane to get. Why? Because you can't pace yourself with any other runners. The only thing you see is just openness, right? Everyone else is staggered behind you if you get the outside lane. And the commentators were absolutely convinced that Eric Little would lose because he's a sprinter. He can't run the 400. He's going to be out of gas before he's halfway there. And the only way he could ever have a chance is if he was in a different lane and he could track himself and pace himself. This isn't his event. Gun goes off, and Eric Little bolts out of the blocks, just like everyone expected, like a sprinter. And he ran, and there's like, oh, there's no way he's going to keep this going. And he kept going and going and going and going and eventually won the race, set a new world record, and won the gold medal. I'm convinced that him drawing the outside lane was the best thing ever 
Because you know what? He had nothing else to look at but the finish line. No one else was in front of him. No one else to see. Just the finish line, which in Eric Little's life, Jesus was there waiting for him. That's my prayer for us. May we be a people who run diligently. Look to those fans cheering you on. Remind yourself that you got to throw off these things that entangle you. But most of all, keep your focus on Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're so grateful for the fact that Christ is our finish line. Even more than that, we're grateful that he actually ran the race for us. He's not just at the finish line. He's already run the race and waits for us there. Lord, may he be our our joy, the great hope of our life, and our great reward. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.